All right. So, as I said, um, you can get a copy of um, the map of Moab at the back, on the back table, if you'd like one. Uh, we weren't able to finish chapter 48 last week. Man, it is, it is an, a long chapter. And again, I mentioned this last time, compared to the other oracles against the nations, it seems to be a bit um, longer than you would expect. Let's put it that way. Um, again, compared to like Egypt. But we're going to finish it up. We're going to start... In, um, in verse 11 to the verse 47, uh, chapter 48, judgment on Moab. Uh, so last week we did talk a, a little bit about the history of the Moabites and the possession of the lands, how it went back and forth. And then well, verses 1 through 10 on that impending overthrow of them as a nation. Um that it was going to come. The Lord had already decreed it. At that point, there was, it was their time. And now, we're going to be covering parts two through seven, those parts, those sections of this chapter. So in part two, um, I'm calling it No More Easy Street. Now that's verses 11 through 13. This is a very brief section, mixture of verse and prose. Um, If you have your Bible, please turn there, verses 11 through 13. Moab has been at ease from his youth and has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. So his taste remains in him, and his scent is not changed. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall send to him pourers who will pour him and empty his vessels, and break his jars in pieces. Then Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. So here we are in this section here, uh, Jeremiah. He's using imagery that was drawn on uh, the production of wine, something that was um, done in, in Moab, something they were proud of, something they did well. Um, but he uses this as an imagery to bring out the reason for Moab's ruin. John McKay, he points out that the word youth here, um, um, it's, it's, it's referring to that period when Moab was established as a nation. Uh, and it seems to point back to the time when they were, were conquering that land, um, they were conquering at this point uh, a people called the Emim. That's E-M-I-M, the Emim. And um, when they conquered them, then that's when they established um, power for themselves in this area. But way back in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Well, the Emim, they were the earlier inhabitants of this land that Moab took over. And they were like the Rephaim. Uh, so the, these Rephaim, these giant, this mysterious giants of antiquity. A lot has been out there in, in the world in terms of trying to surmise about the Rephaim and uh, a lot of strange stuff as well, I, I would say. You know, but 
they were able to conquer the land from these, these giants. Uh, and it was not the case that since, you know, that since their original conquest, that they enjoyed complete peace. Uh, they didn't always enjoy complete peace from their youth. Um, but what they did enjoy was um, being put at ease, as it talks about in verse 11, because um, they never experienced exile. You know, there were times of conflict, but they never had experienced exile. And to a certain extent, Moab, uh, they had been isolated, really, from many of the conquering armies that had swept throughout Palestine and impacted the Canaanites and Israel. Primarily, you would, I think, by the location. You know, they had the Dead Sea on their left. They had the desert on the right. Um, and it was also a mountainous area. So they, they had some isolation in terms of where they were positioned in land. So again, drawing on this image of wine production, it says Moab has settled on its dregs and that he hasn't been emptied from vessel to vessel. So they were, as I mentioned earlier, well known for their wine. Um, so this comparison was relevant for them. They certainly would have understood it. Uh, and when wine was, was made, is made, I don't know if it's, I mean, this, these dregs is, are still something that, that happens in the process. But I'm sure by now it's a lot more um, uh, improved process. Um, but it was customary for it to be left to ferment and mature in what would be underground storage uh, areas where they could regulate the temperature. Um, and then it would be poured from one container to another to prevent it from um, going, becoming too harsh, really. Um, so thus, you know, wine uh, on the dregs refers to a very long matured wine. You know, that those dregs, are the, it's the sediment um, that, that would come to the bottom of the vessel. And uh, it was very important to try to leave that sediment, those dregs, undisturbed as they poured it from vessel to vessel. Um, so that would be part of the refining process. So here we find Moab had been left indefinitely on its dregs. That sediment hadn't been purified away. Uh, in verse 12, you know, we see that the Lord is going to send this, still at this point, an unidentified adver adversary who's going to come in and treat Moab uh, as wine that is ready to be transferred from one vessel to another. Again, this normally would be done with special care as to not disturb that sediment as much as possible. You know, trying not to spill the wine. You can just imagine the care that they would have to put into it to not disturb, disturb these properties. Well, those who are going to pour out the containers of Moab aren't going to be gentle in their treatment. They're going to empty its vessels and break its jars. So as, you know, for us, you know, some of this imagery is lost on us until we study it a little bit. But it would have been very clear in understanding uh, 
to Moab at that time. So continuing on in verse 13, talks about Moab being ashamed of their false god of Chemosh. Ashamed because you know, they trusted in this, this god who proved to be very helpless and useless. So they're ashamed of their god, you know, this god of Moab, um, one whom they had throughout their existence attributed their prosperity and their security Again, the, the point of Nebuchadnezzar, they'd never been exiled as a nation, as a whole nation. But to, in the process of a com the complete success of the invaders, they're going to expose their God's powerlessness. And so they're no longer going to be able to boast in him. They're going to be ashamed in him. In, in him. Uh, certainly something God does when he judges with these nations he shows to them how powerless their gods are. And uh, we talked earlier last week about how their, even their priests will be taken away into exile. Uh, it will be like the house of Israel as they were ashamed and, and as they trusted, trusted in Bethel. That's what it says then in the text. Is Israel was ashamed and trusting in Bethel. So what, what happened in Bethel? Um, so, you know, recall that when the kingdom of Israel, when it was divided into two after Solomon's reign, okay, going way, way back, several centuries, um, the, northern uh, the northern kingdom was temporarily under the power of, um, of Jeroboam, okay? And as you read in scripture for quite a while, um, the evil of the kings is attributed often to them gravitating towards the sins of Jeroboam. You know, as you're reading through, you know, um, the kings and the chronicles, and, and it talks about them um, earlier on, um, repeating the sins of Jeroboam. Well, Jeroboam, when he was leading the nation, he was afraid that the people in the northern kingdom would want to go to Jerusalem to worship and thus weaken this newly divided nation. You know, they were supposed to sojourn um, to the place where God was resting, where he was, the temple was, where the altar was. They weren't to do, make altars anywhere else. They were to come and, and worship in Jerusalem at this point in time. And he didn't want that to happen. So what did he do? He, he made calves of gold, and he set them up, one in Bethel and one in Dan. Dan is at the, the top of the area, okay, of, of the kingdom. And he did this, and you can read about it in chapter 12 of 1 Kings. Uh, he said, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That didn't go well the first time they did that. Um, and it certainly didn't go well for them. Uh, eventually, eventually, the Assyrian invasion brought shame upon Israel for their very adulterous affair with Bethel. But we know, that being students of history, that was centuries later when the Assyrians eventually invaded and, and took the northern kingdom away as, as captives. 
You know, they had gone, grown quite comfortable thinking that God was okay with their lifestyle and their sin. Um, all the while, God was being patient and merciful, and their time had come. All right, let's move into the next section, verses 14 through 17. You know, how the mighty, how the mighty fall. We read this. How do you say, we are heroes and mighty men of war? The destroyer of Moab and his cities has come up, and the choicest of his young men have gone down to slaughter, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. The calamity of Moab is near at hand, and his affliction hastens swiftly. Grieve for him, all you who are around him, and all who know his name. Say, how the mighty scepter is broken, the glorious staff. This imminent fate of theirs it brings out um, even some prideful boastings. In, in verse 14, a challenge is issued to Moab. You know, how can they say these things about themselves in light of their imminent destruction? How can they say these things? They obviously consider themselves to be a dominance of some sort in military affairs, even though there's not really much re any record of them going out and conquering lands. Um, they would sometimes be called upon to join with other armies, and they would invite themselves into little skirmishes here and there, but they weren't known for great conquerors. But, you know, they boasted in their military prowess. Verse 15, uh, you know, with the certainty offered by the Lord's own declaration, here the Lord making that declaration, uh, their cities are doomed. That their very best, the very best of the, the invading army is going to be tasked with bringing judgment to Moab. The very best, the, these young, strong soldiers. Now, the identity of the invaders here, being named called these young men, it speaks to the tenacity of these invaders, of these attackers. Uh, these um, young warriors, they're going to want to prove themselves to their generals, to their officers, even more than the typical soldier would. Besides their, you know, their, their strength and, and energy being young, um, so they're going to want to prove themselves. They're being called out, and they're going to attack with, with tenacity, and they're going to be fear, uh, fierce in that attack. Well, McKay, he talks about, and he brings a note out here, that Josephus um, recorded that five years after the fall of Jerusalem, so five years after Jerusalem fell from Nebuchadnezzar, in the 23rd year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar subjugated Moab, right? So about five years after Jerusalem fell. Um, you won't find this, however, in any of the Babylonian records. Um, so there are some that argue uh, it's hard to corroborate this, what Josephus is, is calling out. Um, but we do have a, a general sense that it would have been soon after Jerusalem fell talks about the mighty staff and, and scepter of Moab in verse 17. You know, it's, 
It's not to refer to its power, the power of, of Moab and their ability to muster not only their own defenses, but even get aid to come in and help um, in military strength. Um, they weren't a dominating nation themselves, but those who surround Moab, those who knew them as neighbors, are told here in verse 17 to grieve for their demise. You know, a lot like we've seen as we've been going to Jeremiah about wagging the head at Israel, at Judah, as the people pass by and see the destruction that's come upon them. The same thing's going to happen to Moab. Um, verses 18 through 25, we see particular judgment being called out on some of these cities. This map might be helpful for that as you, as I read through these. Um, so let me read that, verses 18 through 25. Come down from your glory and sit on the parched ground, O inhabitant of Dibon. For the destroyer of Moab has come up against you. He has destroyed your strongholds. Stand by the way and watch, O inhabitant of Auror. Ask him who flees and her who escapes. Say, what has happened? Moab is put to shame, for it is broken. Wail and cry. Tell it beside the Arnon that Moab is laid waste. Judgment has come upon the tableland, upon Holon, and Jaza, and Metha, and Dibon, and Nebo, and Beth Diblethaim, and Kirithim, and Beth Gamul, and Beth Maon, and Kirioth, and Basra, and all the cities of the land of Moab, far and near. The horn of Moab is cut off, and his arm is broken, declares the Lord. This is very strong language here um, of what's going to happen. You know, naming roughly ten cities here, ten prominent cities in Moab. In verse 18, they're told to come down. What we're supposed to gather from this is it's a, a picture of humiliation in their judgment. Come down. Um, it may be that they are to sit and wait um, as, as they are captives and they, and they learn what their fate's going to be. Now, Dibon, uh, it was a, a major walled city in Moab, so it wasn't a, a simple city to conquer. It had defenses. And it was located on two hills. Um, so it was um, situated well. It was close to a very international uh, trade route, the, the King's Highway. So aid could come to it if needed. Um, so uh, it was situated well. So it's not an easy city to conquer, but it will, be, it will fall like the other cities. And the territory here, um, you know, I mentioned this last week, uh, of particularly the territory of Dibon. It was allocated to the tribe of Gad and Reuben um, in, in neighboring areas. So when Joshua was allocating the land when they took over Canaan, uh, Dibon, it was the capital of King Misha. Uh, we me I mentioned him last week. Um, 
he's the one who had some victories and, and also the Moabite stone was found in 1868 in, oh, in this area that was Debon. Um, so it was a very well-known area. Thought that was very interesting learning about that Moabite stone last week. Well, verse 19 says that they are to stand and watch. Stand and watch, O inhabitant of Or. This is a, another city. Um, and it also lays upon the king's highway. Um, a bit southeast of Dibon on the north bank of the, the river Arnon. So, um, yeah, you have that in the map there. The, the scene here that we're given is the, the citizens are being confronted um, and um, the refugees are pouring down uh, the road, uh, trying to flee before a, a very quickly hastening army. You know, all this has taken place so that the news of the invasion and the collapse hadn't had even time to reach the people that are in this area near the Arnon in this in the city the Aror um, so time the advance is coming so quickly news isn't even happening uh, coming down fast enough so that that's the scene that we have here this picture of this this quickly advancing army of whom we know to be Nebuchadnezzar's in verses 21 through 25 uh, the rest of this section here uh, we see judgments come to the table land you know um, the plateau area. So it's it's referring to the region north of the Arnon. Um, now this was originally the land that belonged to the Amorite kingdom of Sihon. We talked about him last week. Um, and it was taken um, by Moab later from Israel. Israel took it from Sihon Actually, Sion took it from uh, Moab. Israel took it from Sion, the Amorite. And then later, Moab took it from Israel. Again, oh, this, this land changing hands so much. Well, many of the towns listed uh, are mentioned in Scripture here as being allocated to these tribes, um, particularly uh, Reuben in this, in this area. So... Um, it was still a sore area with uh, Moab and Israel between each other. And then lastly, he talks about the horn of Moab is cut off. Well, the horn, and we see this in other areas about the, the horn being referred to the strength of a people. Uh, it's, the horn of an animal was, was a symbol of its, of its strength and sometimes even its ferocity. And it was used in scripture in, a, in another literature in the day to refer to um, the power of, of an individual or even of a nation. So the horn of Moab is being cut off. Once a, an animal's horns are cut off, it was made uh, powerless before its enemies. So that's the picture again we're drawing on here. And it, then it even goes on to say that it's, uh, Moab's arm is broken. You know, again, we have a picture here of powerlessness. Don't have the strength to hold on to that scepter. 
or the sword. This, a, a picture of military defeat. The imagery um, is very vivid here. All right, then in the next section, um, is verses 26 through 33, we see the, the doom of the defiance of the people that's brought out here. Now, the people, as they view with, as anyone really views with disgust of a drunkard wallowing shamefully in his vomit, that's how the nations will look upon Moab. Um, the language is, again, it's, it's, it's harsh and clear. It once had been very proud and boastful nation, but it's going to be brought to a point of being so overwhelmed that it's reduced to a disgrace. So let's read these verses. Start in verse 26. It says, Make him drunk, because he magnified himself against the Lord, so that Moab shall wallow in his vomit, and he too shall be held in derision. Was not Israel a derision to you? Was he found among thieves that whenever you spoke of him, you wagged your head? Leave the cities and dwell in the rock, O inhabitants of Moab. Be like the dove that nests in the sides of the mouth of a gorge. Now we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his loftiness, his pride, and his arrogance, and the haughtiness of his heart. I know his insolence, declares the Lord. His boasts are false. His deeds are false. Therefore, I wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab, for the men of Kirasith. I mourn more than for Jazer. I weep for you, O vine of Sibma. Your branches passed over the sea, reached to the sea of Jazer. On your summer fruits and your grapes, the destroyer has fallen. Gladness and joy have been taken away from this fruitful land of Moab. I have made the wine cease from the wine presses. No one treads them with shouts of joy. The shouting is not the shout of joy. It's going to be the shout of something else. Well, at the very beginning here, we have this picture that the Lord's declaring, make him drunk. This picture of judgment coming on the people. Uh, this drunkenness, it's... it's it's that which causes them to spin, lose their senses, even the point to where they, they even can control their own body. In the same way, the Lord's going to judge the land of Moab. Their own ability to assess their own dangers and, and to act upon them are going to be impaired like this drunk man. Now, this the shame of a man struggling to get up from his own vomit. You know, I've never seen that. I can't imagine how shameful that would be. In verse 27, the focus turns to the relationship of, of Moab to Israel. You know, being the way in which they showed their opposition to the Lord, how they treated and mocked Israel. Truly, what comes around goes around. Here is what we, we, you see. You know, they will be treated as they themselves had treated the Lord's people. They will become a derision. Certainly Judah, we know, had sinned against the Lord. Judgment's coming upon Judah. 
exile was coming for them. But when it came to the treatment of Judah that they received from the foreign nations, like Moab here that's being described, they, you couldn't charge them with some gross lawlessness against their nation or some aggressive behavior. Often what we found with you know, the, the vivid description, even in Jeremiah, about the way Judah and Israel acted, um, they were flaunting themselves at their own cost. Usually nations would say, all right, I'll do this for you, but what are you going to do for me? Israel would just say, you know, would give themselves over without any payment in return. And that's kind of the point that's brought out here. What, did, what aggression did Israel ever show you, Moab, that you would treat them and mock them in these ways? They had not acted as robbers toward other nations, not towards Moab. In verses 28 through 33, we see Moab as being urged to take up the life of a fugitive, much like we can read of King David, the way he lived in, at first when he was being pursued by Saul. They were living like this because they were unable to offer any effective resistance of their own. So the best hope that they could have is to find caves to dwell in and the sides uh, of the cliffs and like the doves mentioned here. And so what's, what is the cause of her doom? What's the cause of Moab's doom that's being called? It's, it's her pride. It's her pride. She boasted of a self-sufficiency. She was insolent, it says. She was filled with conceit. And it was her pride. You know, so deluded was Moab by her pride that they, they could not see that their deeds were unable to even match up to their boastings. You know, we, no one appreciates a person that boasts but it's even worse when they can't even do the things that they talk about well that was Moab that was Moab and it seems that the Lord is is making this declaration here in verses 31 through 33 because it was only only the Lord and his power could make the wine cease from the wine presses as he directs you know, these armies it's the Lord is is grieved over the state of Moab. You know, we can understand this partly because as we get to the last verse of this chapter, we do see the mercy of the Lord being um, declared. We'll get that to there in a moment. But the Lord is grieved over the state of Moab, this distant, uh, long-lost brother of Israel. All right, part six, the tables have turned. The tables have turned. This is verses 34 through 39. It says, From the outcry at Heshbon, even to Elay, as far as Jahaz, they utter their voice from Zoar to Hornim to Eglath Shalishia, for the waters of Nimrim also have become desolate. And I will bring to an end in Moab, declares the Lord, him who offers sacrifice in the high place and makes offerings to his God. Therefore, my heart moans for Moab like a flute, and my heart moans like a flute for the men of Kirharaseth. Therefore, the riches they gain have perished, for every head is shaved and every beard cut off. On all the hands are gashes, and around the waist is sackcloth. 
On all the housetops of Moab and in the squares, there is nothing but lamentation. For I have broken Moab like a vessel for which no one cares, declares the Lord. How it is broken. How they wail. How Moab has turned his back in shame. So Moab has become a derision and a horror to all that are around him. Again, we see here the the Lord um, grieving over what's happening, even though he's the one bringing this righteous judgment. Now, in verse 25, we see that through the pain of judgment, God removes idolatry from the land of Moab. Everyone um, will be taking part in the traditional customs of, you know, the funeral, this, these customs of wearing the sackcloth, shaving the head and the beard, talks of them um, gashing their hands, you know, something, again, we mentioned last week, uh, something Israel, unique among the nations of Palestine, commanded by the Lord not to, to do this cutting. But again, these things that they did to show their sorrow, their grief, hoping that their, their false god would notice. So the tables we see here, um, especially in verse 39 here, the tables have turned. The tables have turned on Moab. You know, once they were at one time mocking Israel in derision, that means in an, an object, they looked at Israel as an object of of mockery, well, that's going to change. Now it's them. Now all those nations around them are going to do the same thing because of what's come upon them. And then we get to our final section here, verses 40 through 47, these final words of judgment. And then we see that, again, that, that short glimpse of mercy coming in. You know, it's a, a few paragraphs uh, where destruction of Moab is it's further predicted. And so let's read those verses, 40 through 47. For thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Moab. The city shall be taken and the strongholds seized. The heart of the warriors of Moab shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. Moab shall be destroyed and be no longer a people because he magnified, magnified himself against the Lord. Terror, pit, and snare are before you, O inhabitant of Moab, declares the Lord. He who flees from the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For I will bring these things upon Moab in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the shadow of Heshbon, fugitives stop without strength, for fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the house of Sihon. It has destroyed the forehead of Moab, the crown of the sons of Tumult. Woe to you, O Moab! The people of Chemosh are undone, for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters into captivity. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far is the judgment on Moab. All right, wrapping up this chapter here. Well, the warning that we see in verse 40 seems mild enough. Um, 
but that's not the case. It talks about the eagle here. My daughters and I driving over here this morning, for some reason, birds of prey actually came into our conversation. I didn't even initiate it, but I told them, hey, we're going to get to talk about it a little bit this morning. You know, the eagle is a bird of prey. Um, it's used just here to describe how Moab's tormentors are going to be, These, how Nebuchadnezzar and his army are going to be. You have this picture here of this, this bird of prey, you know, rising high in the sky, sees its victim, its impending victim very well, as an eagle can, right? Um, zooms in on his victim, its wings are already, as it's described here in the text, casting a shadow on its target, and it's waiting for that right moment to swoop down and kill. You know, we have a scene here of precision in its attack, the deadliness of it, this bird of prey. And then in verse 41, you know, some more vivid imagery is given here about how the hearts of these warriors are going to melt before their invading armies. And, and ladies, you, you know better that momentary dread that comes upon you when that painful time in giving birth is about to come. You know, and I'm talking about in the birth process, when you know that moment is coming, that if you've had a child before, you're dreading. Um, that same dread is prophesied here to describe the dread coming upon the hearts of Moab's warriors. You know, the people are doomed. They are doomed because if they escape one horror, they're only going to fall into another. These, these pits that they're going to fall into, it talks about. What we read here in verse 45, um, let me turn the page here. What we read here in verse 45, it mirrors um, about the, you know, fleeing from the terror here and falling into the pit. You know, one disaster to another, one snare to another. It mirrors what we read in Numbers chapter 21, verse 28. Let me read that real quick. Um, it says, For fire came out from Heshbon, Flame from the city of Sion, it devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. A prophecy way back um, into Israel's early days about this, this destruction that will come upon them. It reads very closely to what we have in verse 45 here. Um, then we see this final woe. It's uttered, uh, being uttered here. It's, so we have a, a, a brief glimpse of also hope being offered as well. Um, that the fortunes of Moab will be um, restored to them. And, um, you know, when you look at your history books, it's hard to understand exactly what that means. How did that play itself out, the fortunes being restored to them? Uh, perhaps it's pointing to you know, the first advent of Christ. Um, and so we see here God's marvelous grace. It's greater than all sin. It's all greater than all their sin. So perhaps that's what it's pointing to here, this, um, this mercy. Um, I don't know. But that ends our study on chapter 48, that very... Um, 
vivid picture of judgment coming upon Moab. You know, perhaps it was what Moab should have been to Israel in terms of um, a long lost brother, if you will, that relationship, what what should have been there. And instead, uh, they denied that relationship. And maybe that's why um, such a long prophecy of judgment is, is brought out here compared to the others. Next week we'll be in chapter 49. Now chapter 49 um, as we continue against in these oracles of the nations it lists a number of nations being judged. You know, um, multiple ones. So we'll, we'll work through those as God allows us. Hopefully we can get through it all. Um, but that's what we have to look forward to next week. Again, the takeaway that we should be coming from in these oracles is just God's sovereignty over the nations, not just over his people, but over 